0: I'm at Rockefeller Center in midtown Manhattan, near the giant Christmas tree, near steps from the ice skating rink, the epicenter, really, of Christmas in New York City. It's a bit muted this year, as you can imagine, with a lot more masks and a lot more distance between awestruck tourists than usual. But nevertheless, even in the midst of a global pandemic and a clumsy coup, it's hard not to get swept up by the holiday spirit when you're here, or at any number of other festive locales around New York. It really is a Christmas city, which is presumably why so many holiday movies are set in New York. And that, I'm sure, is what prompted my co-host and producer, Mike Holt, to encourage me to take it easy for this episode. Relax a bit on the politics and commentary and unpleasantness, and instead just, you know, pick a gentle, harmless New York Christmas movie and talk about that. Have some fun. Drink some cocoa. Give you something to chuckle along to while you're wrapping your presents. So for the next hour or so, we're going to talk about Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Chris Columbus and John Hughes' 1992 sequel to the blockbuster holiday favorite. I mean, after all, there's nothing all that provocative, or frankly, even thought-provoking, about Home Alone 2, right? Right? Well, to find out... We've got film critic and author Mark Ash.
1: I have some extensive notes.
0: And Pitchfork senior editor Jillian Mapes. Home Alone 1 and Home Alone 2. I mean, fuck Home Alone 3. As well as You're Wrong About co-host Sarah Marshall.
2: Santa is the ultimate home invader, so you just gotta hope Kevin never never goes after him.
0: And freelance film writer Anya Stanley. Oh, that kind of varies, doesn't it? I'm sober right now. I'm Jason Bailey, and this is Fun City Cinema, a podcast about New York and the movies that made it.
3: We're going to New York. Move it! It's a party. Come on! It's Christmas Eve.
4: Lighten
1: up a little bit. Well, it's Christmas Eve. Good deeds count for extra tonight.
4: It's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer. We smile a little easier. We share a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be.
5: Fun City Cinema by Jason Bailey and Mike Hull.
4: Favorite New York moment? This one's climbing the charts.
5: I'm gonna teach you a Christmas lesson, you naughty boy. Okay. Merry Christmas! Excuse me,
3: but this is an emergency. Yes, sir? What city is that over there?
0: That's New York, sir.
3: Yikes,
0: I did it again. We should probably start by really honing in on why Home Alone 2 lost in New York exists at all. And the answer to that is that Home Alone made an absurd amount of money. Just ridiculous box office. Marvel numbers. Its budget was $18 million, which it earned back in its opening weekend in the US alone. It went on to gross $285 million domestic and $191 million international for an overall worldwide haul of $477 million, nearly half a billion bucks, in 1990 money. So of course they were going to make another one, and do it as quickly as possible. Home Alone 2 Lost in New York was released on November 20th, 1992, two years almost to the day from the November 16, 1990 release of the original. It was shot in New York City as well as in and around Chicago, the previous winter, capturing a period in which the city was in transition. As we discussed in our first episode, David Dinkins had been elected mayor at the end of 1989, ending the three-term reign of Ed Koch and two decades of financial tumult and high crime rates. David Dinkins barely won that mayoral race, narrowly defeating Rudolph Giuliani, who remained a vocal and vociferous critic throughout the Dinkins administration, ramping up for a rematch in 1993, one in which Giuliani would prevail. But the reduction in crime and rebound of the city's public image that would come to define the Giuliani era had already begun under Dinkins, all of which makes Home Alone 2 an especially fascinating urban artifact. I don't mind confessing that I didn't come to this conclusion on my own. I saw Home Alone 2 when it came out back in 1992, didn't like it much, and didn't really think about it again. I only reconsidered it when I read the 2018 book Close-Ups, New York Movies.
1: Uh, Yeah, the second one I think I must have just seen in theaters. This is
0: that book's author, Mark Ash.
1: And then I think it became more of like a thing, as we sort of hit the age and like our 20s where we started to get like very nostalgic for 90s children's entertainment it became sort of like a thing to revisit and being sort of in thrall to like the then sort of up and coming and now sort of ubiquitous hoberman school of reading movies as very specific sociopolitical artifacts i sort of discovered in my 20s that it was like a really rich text you could really read this movie as as like a really important Giuliani film.
0: And all that matters because for a lot of viewers, of a certain age at least, Home Alone 2 is New York. It was a key movie in terms of forming an impression of what the city is, especially for those of us who ended up living here.
3: I grew up in um, Northeast Ohio, like outside of Youngstown.
0: This is Jillian Mapes. She's a senior editor for Pitchfork.
3: So I'm actually from the town that is the first town on I-80 that you get like in Ohio that is like a truck stop town. And it is like the route that people take to New York. Like if you go from Chicago, if you go anywhere in the Midwest, you're most likely going to just go straight across Pennsylvania. And I live in the first town. So I grew up my whole life seeing like, you know, Sharon, Pennsylvania, like 10 miles, New York City, like 495. So this this movie did have a big impact on me.
0: Years later, Jillian moved to New York to become a writer, mostly about music. And when she revisited Home Alone 2, she made a disturbing discovery.
3: I had watched it so many times as a kid. We had the VHS. We'd watch it every Christmas. And I hadn't watched it for a couple of years after I had lived in New York for maybe like you know, two or three years, and I watched it, and I was so excited to watch it. And it, like, stuck in my craw, and I started thinking about it.
0: Because now that she lived in New York, Jillian realized how totally disconnected this movie was from the actual geography of the city. It started to consume her. She did web research, started comparing Google Maps. She's written articles about how they just plain get the city wrong and she doesn't apologize for it.
3: I have to be obsessive because New York, I mean, so many people say, oh, the city or the park, it's a character in the movie. It's like, this is this is Kevin's co-star. So, let's take it from the top.
0: As with the original, Home Alone 2 concerns the abandonment of little Kevin McAllister, played again by Macaulay Culkin, by his family during a holiday vacation. This time around, instead of leaving him in their suburban Chicago domicile, there's a convoluted mix-up at the airport.
4: Are you on this flight? Yeah, so is my family. They're already on the plane and I don't want to be left behind. Do you have a boarding pass? It's somewhere. We
3: have to close up here. They're ready to go.
4: He dropped his boarding pass. This plane can't leave. This happened to me last year and almost wrecked my Christmas.
0: Kevin ends up not on the family flight to Florida, but on a plane to New York LaGuardia.
4: My family's in Florida and I'm in New York. My family's... In Florida? I'm in New York?
0: As he has this realization, the New York skyline looms large through the airport windows behind him. And they're already lying to us.
3: From what I've understood, they shot the airport scenes at O'Hare. You know, LaGuardia is 10 miles from from Manhattan, so that's not how big the buildings look. That's definitely like right across the river kind of shot. There's no way that the view is the view there.
0: Once Kevin realizes he's alone in New York, he goes into tourist mode. Armed with a fistful of his dad's cash and credit cards, he grabs a taxi and does what any New York visitor does. He goes sightseeing.
3: Yeah, and I I will say I appreciate that they move somewhat logically from north to south at least you know in this montage. I mean, okay, he took the Queensboro Bridge, which is fine. The Midtown Tunnel would have been faster, but like you know, it's a good view, it's a good shot, it's a feasible route. I'll give them that. And then it's like he starts in radio in Midtown, like Radio City, and then he's going to the Empire State Building, and then he's going over to the Empire Diner in Chelsea, and then he's going. I mean, this is a little from west to east, but then he's going over to the shop in Chinatown where he buys fireworks. And then he's going down to Battery Park and then he's going to the World Trade Center. And somehow he ends up on top of the World Trade Center, which is never explained or investigated at all. But um, he's just up there alone. You know, it's just kind of (laughs) crazy.
0: And then it's time for Kevin to find lodgings. So following the suggestion of a commercial announcement at the end of a game show, he goes to the world-famous Plaza Hotel.
3: This is one of our finest suites, sir. They actually shot a lot of uh, the film in the plaza, parts of the plaza that are now, like, you can't go look at. They're, like, private. they like, private residence lobby is the lobby that they shot in.
0: And some of it, God forbid, was shot in Chicago at the Four Seasons Hotel. As is the exterior of Duncan's toy chest, the toy store where Kevin travels by limousine the next day.
3: I mean, it's clearly kind of like an FAO Schwartz vibe, and the location where they put it is like where that legendary FAO Schwartz was, like near 5th and 59th, right near the plaza, all that stuff. But they, the exterior of it was shot in Chicago at this like very famous historic building called the Rookery. Alas, Kevin's deception
0: cannot last.
3: The plaza staff
0: realizes he's using a stolen credit card, and coincidentally enough, Kevin's not the only Chicago resident visiting New York.
3: Here we are, Marv. New York City, the land of opportunity. He is trying to find somewhere to go. He can't go back to the plaza because they realize that the credit card is stolen and Tim Curry is onto him and the bandits are, are like, nipping on his heels and it's just like, he has to find some place to be in New York. So he looks up his uncle's address in his father's address book because he has his father's um, bag carry on. So he finds it and he goes up there. The address is 51 West 95th Street. This is like where it really breaks down, where you're just like, okay, you wanna use landmarks that are in the east side of the park and you want the uncle to live on the Upper West Side. Jillian is
0: right. This is a round where the film just completely breaks with topographical reality, and Kevin starts to cover an unreasonable amount of ground. After an encounter with his old nemesis, the Wet Bandits, and the discovery of their plot to rob the very toy store he visited earlier, Kevin ends up in Central Park with the scary pigeon lady who turns out to be so secretly refined that she takes him to Carnegie Hall to hear classical music, blah, blah, blah.
3: He's feeling the spirit of Christmas. He's feeling connected with other humans. And he's remembering what Duncan from Duncan's Toy Chest said about giving all the money to this children's hospital. And so he just looks uptown. You know, this is like mid, mid-50s. mid This is like Carnegie Hall. And he's looking uptown and supposedly he can just see the shining star on the top of this building that is a fake St. Anne's Hospital for Children. The building itself is actually Columbia a Teachers College that's about 75 blocks away. So he walks
0: those 75 blocks somehow so he can have an epiphany at the hospital.
3: Okay, he's so upset that they are going to steal from Duncan's toy chest and steal from this children's hospital that he goes back down to Duncan's toy chest, which is, again also about 75 blocks away, throws the brick in the he's window, B- he Scope catches Marsh. them, he's with running the away, he, he goes back to his uncle's house, okay, that's yeah. That's a two mile run, let me see, let me do the math Before really quick, it's uh, about a mile from Inscope to Rockefeller so Center, you're talking, and about talking about two miles, one mile, 150 blocks. I wonder how much 150 blocks is uh is there some kind of city math i'm not remembering
0: by this point in our conversation jillian and i just kind of gave up and tried to figure out how much ground kevin actually covers in this couple of hours on christmas eve
3: everything all in in actuality you'd be talking about him he's like running on foot like nine to ten miles
0: he doesn't even seem winded but you know kids they're energetic anyway it's fascinating to look at Home Alone 2 through this lens of ground-covered and sight-seen, because in many ways, the movie's really just like a two-hour New York tourism commercial. That's especially present in that first montage of his sight seen. but really the entire movie, even while paying lip service to the ideas of danger and mugging and murder and scary Central Park just across the way from the Plaza Hotel, is sending the message that New York is so safe, even this unaccompanied minor will be just fine. And on that point I want to bring my co-host Mike Holen because we, we kind of need to understand the economic importance of tourism both at this point and in the preceding decade or so because it really was like the magic bullet. Am I wrong in that reading?
4: No, you're not wrong. It was definitely talked about that way. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. If...
0: <laughs> I, I I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply that it actually was, but it was it was certainly floated as like the cure-all that they needed to aspire to.
4: Yeah, and there was a it was part of this international movement really. You know, it, it, we can't just talk about New York itself in this sense. We have to talk about New York as a global city and really what was happening globally in a lot of ways. And it kind of starts, I know this is a little bit out of field, but it kind of starts you know, Nixon took took us off the gold standard, right? Okay. Trust me where I'm going with this. We're going
0: to go that wide. All right. No, no, no. Here we go. Here we go. I'm in.
4: I promise we're going to come back. (laughs) And when you go off the gold standard, you know, money is really at that point just a this like magical bullshit thing that we all just agree has value. So what that really does is it ends up opening up tons and tons of credit. You know, and it changes the the world market in a lot of ways. And at the same time, you know, shortly after that's happening, as that starts to make its way into the economy, you also have, you know, the Soviet Union is really falling apart. You're starting to see West Germany become a lot more of an economic power to the point that the reunification eventually happens, right? You start to see money in Japan in, in the eighties, and there's a lot of, of money coming into Tokyo through tourism. And you're starting to see global tourism happening in a way that it just really hadn't been, you know, with with the the major wars and all of the kind of economic catastrophes and stuff that happened after that and the rebuilding. But when you're talking about international travel, like who are you talking about? You know, you're not talking about everybody, right? You're talking about a certain class of people, but that class of people brings money from the, wherever they're at to wherever you're at and spends it there. Right. So there is, you know, an economic boon and that economic boon is... Is not necessarily going to like the real estate business, it's not necessarily going to you know um, property taxes and things that the city can use, but it is going to hotels, it's going to restaurants, it's just not going to the kind of local businesses that usually sustain a city's economy. So it looks really good, you can make amazing commercials about it, you can show all of this kind of flashy income, but it's not like having manufacturing jobs <laughs> for instance
0: but when we're we're in this period of of economic duress in the mid-70s that we've that we have talked about and we'll certainly talk about more where sort of the bottom fell out of the city financially like that really was the era where that was seen as like this is going to rescue us if we spit shine the city and we make our fancy i Heart New York logo, and really start to pitch it as a tourist destination... Uh, that's where that, that will be the influx of, of revenue that we, that we need so bad. And, and it's easy
4: money. It's cheap money. You know, that's another thing is like, you don't necessarily have to build out massive amounts of infrastructure. You do have to clean up times square, right? You know, there's certain things you have to do, but it's not like you have to provide low income housing and, and medical care for, for all of these people. They don't live here. They go back home to die.
0: (laughs) Right, and the thing from what I from what I've read, from what I understand too, is that like you know this is all stuff. Now we're talking about eighties. Now we're talking about the Co- the Ed Koch era, and this is all you know. These are all ideas and and policies and initiatives that he's working through and pushing through and really taking on that sort of neoliberal stance that was. Uh, fairly prevalent worldwide at that in that decade. But because of the sort of the the, the the molasses slow movement of business and real estate and all that sort of stuff, that a lot of that didn't actually fully start to come to fruition until the 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 early early 1990s the era that we're talking about here like it took that long to clear all of the the deeds on 42nd Street and to and to make all of that happen
4: well and also as we've talked about you know there was at this point you know three decades of movies about how dangerous it was and and you know of <laughs> right. the police don't seem reliable and you know i mean it was they had a they they it was an uphill battle to begin with so it's not the kind of thing that you can turn around you know i don't want to like say nice things about Koch necessarily but it's not something you can flip in one term right you know it is something that takes years The, the logistics of it also remember New York is one of the last cities that is unionized you know especially a lot of the kind of city workers and a lot of the construction workers and stuff like that many times when people say that they mean it as a negative I don't mean that as a negative sure but it does take a little extra time to pay people a living wage and follow safety regulations and, like, right. you know, to do these things right, especially in a space like that, takes a little extra time. A lot of the buildings and in, in around the 42nd Street area, which we keep focusing on Midtown because that was such a focus of of the, you know, the reconstructions effort. Totally. You know, it's also where a lot of the media is concentrated, so it's easy for people to go out and get those stories, take those photographs. So we keep kind of focusing on that, but if you think about that, if you're going to tear down, if you're going to replace a building in 42nd Street, you've got subway tunnels underneath it. You can't just knock a building down like it's a Walmart in a suburb somewhere. Right. You have to be concerned with everything around you, and it takes a long time to get all that stuff structurally correct, especially when what you're trying to build is a 70 story, you know, glass and steel thing, right? Which is a lot of what was going up at that time were these just massive, massive buildings that were not intended for people to live in.
0: But it's fair to say that, like, a lot of that, for all of the reasons we're talking about, a lot of these initiatives and this focus uh, and this sort of concentrated campaign of, of, making new york city a shiny tourist destination like this is right around when it's happening like 90 91 92 the time between the home alone movies and i think it's I, one thing that really jumped out at me in watching it this time is that you will notice like new york was not a destination was not considered a, the tourist destination for this family in either of these movies that they're going to paris in the first one and they're going to florida in the second one they just end up in new york but Kevin has this wonderful time and especially once the family arrives at the hotel and they're given like a tree and presents and all, I'm just like this could not be more of a naked play for the New York tourist dollar like if it literally ended with like the i Heart new york
4: logo. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. There's there's that is one of my favorite stories of this this little era. Milton Glaser invented the I Heart New York logo in 1977. You know, we're not long past the Fear City pamphlet, and New York is really in you know the death throes of the bankruptcy era and drop dead and all that madness. And he creates the I Love New York logo, right? Right. And he's a graphic designer and he's a teacher, and he creates this logo, and he ends up giving it away to the Empire State Development Corporation, and it becomes the logo of New York City, right? And he lives there. He does love New York. And he's very proud of it. OK, right. So now fast forward to 2001, 9-11 happens. He still Milton Glazer still lives in New York and he still loves it. And he wants to he, he he wants to react. He wants to provide something to the city in a way that he did before. So he takes his I love New York logo and he reformats it to say more than ever. Mm. underneath it right right and he uses the type and the way he kind of sets it all out and they're all four letter words is he's he's a graphic designer he's a professional it looks very nice right and he reformats this thing and it's beautiful now he reached out to the uh the empire state development corporation and was like hey guys like this terrible thing happened i'm sure you heard about it here's this <laughs> thing you know here's like the update yeah you know and he never heard back from them right so he just starts using it and now he never made any money off the first one. He gave it away. He gave them the copyright. Sure, you know, and they have sold I don't know a trillion trinkets with that on it since then. Right. He created this thing, and, and I heart New York more than ever, and he started giving it away. And he gave it to as many people as who wanted it, and including the Daily News picks it up, right? And the Daily News prints it on the back cover Mm -hmm. of one of their editions. And you know, the Daily News at that point is like 50 cents, right, so you can get one of these things and you can hang it up. People actually did genuinely appreciate that, right? Right. The Empire State Development Corp sued him for copyright infringement. They sued the guy that created the thing for being moved by (laughs) 9-11 and still loving New York more than ever. And those are the people who are in charge of the city.
5: (laughs) I grew up in LA, San Diego, Poway, all around there.
0: This is freelance film writer Anya Stanley.
5: And I had no idea what New York was like beyond maybe this movie and a couple of others. And so my idea of it was that it was this um, it, it was there was a duality to it. there was this paradise you know like as you can see in the beginning when, when Kevin realizes that he's lost in New York and he takes a cab he's got his dad's cash he's take his dad's credit cards he goes nuts and just goes to the toy store he buys cheese pizza he does eat's he, he, the whole night. Mr. McAllister here's your very own cheese pizza and it seemed like a, like a paradise like a great place for a kid to be. Until like nighttime. And then it starts to get a little a little terrifying for a child. You know, he's walking through Central Park of all places.
3: Watch it, kid! <laughs> hey, you looking for somebody
4: to read you a bedtime story?
5: And it it, it reflects something that I think every kid experiences where the world itself is a really mesmerizing and dazzling place. But it's also absolutely terrifying when it wants to be.
0: (laughs) It's enlightening to think of Home Alone 2 within the continuum, not just of New York movies, but New York tourist movies. The key text for most of the 70s and 80s was Arthur Hiller and Neil Simon's 1970 comedy The Out of Towners. Jack Lemon and Sandy Dennis play a mild-mannered Midwestern couple visiting New York for a weekend to explore a possible promotion and move. They arrive in the middle of a transit strike, a sanitation strike, and a rainstorm. Their hotel reservation has disappeared. They're mugged, they're kidnapped, they're chased by cops, they're trapped in a protest, they're nearly killed. They spend the night in Central Park.
3: George, I can't walk and you can't carry me. And there are no buses or taxis and no car is going to stop to pick up bleeding strangers.
1: It's not safe in the park at night. We
3: have already been robbed and kidnapped. We have nothing to lose but four cents.
0: This was, for a long time, how tourists feared a visit to New York City would go. And they weren't always wrong. The cinema of the 1970s and the 1980s, especially exploitation and genre cinema, furthered the notion of New York as this terrifying urban hellscape. In the 70s exploitation
5: cinema, you got, it's a very unsentimental eye towards New York. It it shows it as it is, and this this is what you're dealing with, this is what you got.
0: But in the late 1980s, though the city was only marginally more livable, The way we saw outsiders and tourists in New York movies changed. This was the era of the wacky, fish out of water New York comedy. Films like the 1988 Eddie Murphy hit Coming to America.
5: Good morning, my neighbors! Hey,
0: fuck you! Yes! Yes! Fuck you too! Or 1987's Crocodile Dundee, where the title character, like Kevin McAllister, stays at the Plaza Hotel.
2: You got a light, buddy? Yeah,
3: sure, kid. There you go. And your wallet.
1: Nick, give him your wallet. What for? He's got a knife.
4: (laughs) That's not a knife.
2: That's a knife.
0: As did the heroines of Big Business from
5: 1988. What's going on? What are we doing here? I don't know, but don't take your eye out your suitcase. We're starting to see outside characters come in and deal with the city in, in a way that is accessible to everybody. And it's it's a little bit more rose-colored. And it's there, there's definitely a side of it that says, yeah, this city is is a little nutso. But, you know, we also love it and there's plenty to love about it, whether you're from here or not.
0: But by the time of Home Alone 2 in the early 1990s, there's more to it than that. This is Mark Ash again. It's
1: coming at a time when the 80s crime wave is subsiding and Giuliani is about to come in, and you can see sort of a real urgency towards cleaning up the city, which, which is in scare quotes, and what people would call the disnification of Times Square, making it quite literally very family friendly. That walk through Central Park, here's what's interesting about that. What are the things that, and granted he's a child, so I'm willing to give Kevin McAllister a little leeway here about being scarier, but what are the things that represent the, the decadent and the fear and the terror of New York City? They are unhoused people. They are sex workers who are like making like a joke at him. It's really all what Giuliani and Bratton would call quality of life stuff.
0: Those quality of life crimes, as we discussed a couple of episodes back, were part of eventual Mayor Giuliani and Police Commissioner William Bratton's adoption of the broken windows theory. Policing, with particular vigor, the kind of small surface crimes that give an impression of chaos and anarchy that can lead, the theory goes, to more widespread serious crime. Vandalism, panhandling, and so forth. The kind of stuff that makes a city especially ugly in, say, a major motion picture, for example. So, it's probably just a coincidence that at the film's narrative turning point, Kevin McAllister literally breaks a window.
4: This is it. No turning back. Another Christmas in the trenches.
1: Just like Mookie.
0: Keep in mind, this is only three years after do the right thing.
1: It's so striking. And obviously, they're very different reasons. Mookie commits the unforgivable sin of property crime, whereas Kevin is trying to get the attention of the cops so that they will take seriously this potential theft of money and of toys. Uh, Harry? It does reference all of these sort of perceptions that had been building about New York City through all of these films. That there's like references to muggers and murders and being terrified of Central Park. But we're sort of showing the way in which the city can be sort of safe for commerce.
0: Of course, Kevin encounters one more terror of New York City that we haven't talked about. The scariest of them all, perhaps.
5: And worst of all, there's 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 Trump. He's right there, right there in the lobby. Terrible.
1: Excuse me, where's
5: the lobby? Down the hall and to the left.
4: Thanks.
0: Now, let's keep in mind Donald Trump, then only known as a tabloid fixture in New York real estate loudmouth, does not appear in Home Alone 2 out of some great tribute to a celebrity.
1: It was a condition of him of them sh- being able to shoot in the plaza, which he arguably owned at the time. It's in <laughs> Looking at the timeline of when his creditors probably took over ownership of that property, I wonder if they actually needed his permission to shoot there at all. Like, the bank probably owned the plaza by, by, by the time they were shooting this movie.
0: This inside information first came to light via Matt Damon, who told The Hollywood Reporter in a 2017 interview. The deal was that if you wanted to shoot in one of his buildings, you had to write him in a part. Martin Brest had to write something in Sen of a Woman, and the whole crew was in on it.
1: You have to waste an hour of your day with a bullshit shot. Donald Trump walks in and Al Pacino's like, hello, Mr. Trump. You had to call him by name. And then he exits. You waste a little time so you
0: can get the permit and then you can cut the scene out. But I guess in Home Alone 2, they left it in. That last part is truly striking. Like everyone else knew that after you wasted the hour placating Trump's ego and shooting his bullshit cameo, you just leave it on the cutting room floor. But not Home Alone 2. A movie that, by the way, runs a full-ass two hours. Nope, they left it in. And the way in which he just stands
1: and like looks over his shoulder, like cocks his head, he purses his lips, just standing in the middle of the frame, it's even like sort of like a low-angle shot so that he looks taller. Because he is maybe an icon on the level of like Rockefeller Center, like a place that is just a part of Midtown where nobody really goes, but everybody knows.
0: But now, at the end of the Trump presidency, as we try to grapple with not only what his rise to prominence in America, but in New York before it really means, it's clear that there's a lot to unpack about the Donald Trump cameo and what it says about the movie around it.
1: I think it's inevitable that this becomes, to a certain extent, a Trump film. And the sort of like New York romanticism that's strictly for out-of-towners, like there's a bunch of business with uh, Central Park carriage horses, which is definitely something I did as a child visiting New York City in the Giuliani years, but never, never since. And so it's sort of a movie for for out-of-town wannabes like me before I moved to New York and like essentially like a guy from Queens like Trump, uh, who's invested in Manhattan property values essentially.
5: It
3: idealizes the section of New York that when you like move to New York and actually live here, you're like, I don't need to go there.
0: That's Jillian Mapes again. I don't
3: need to go to 59th and Fifth Avenue, like ever. I don't need to go to the plaza. I don't need to go to FAO Schwartz. I don't need to go look at, you know, like that kind of stuff. But it really, um, it really made that area of Manhattan in particular and the like sort of southeastern part of the park where a lot of this stuff takes place, it does build up um, a sort of early 90s Trumpian glamour of Manhattan.
1: And Central Park is sort of the locus of both Trump's aspirations for New York and, or for Manhattan and for his fears about it. So on the one hand, there's the glamour of the plaza and the rink and the old school New York romance. And on the other hand, there's the Central Park jogger case.
0: You better believe that I hate the people that took this girl and raped her brutally.
4: You better believe it. And it's more than anger, it's hatred. And I want society
0: to hate him. Donald Trump didn't just seek justice for the Central Park jogger, who was raped and nearly beaten to death in 1989. He took out a full-page ad in four New York newspapers, headlined, Bring Back the Death Penalty, Bring Back the Police. Those ads called for the executions of the five young men accused, but not yet tried or convicted for the crime. Years later, they were exonerated. Trump refused to admit he'd been wrong, to apologize for the ad, or even to admit that the five men had not committed the crime, even though another man had confessed to it and DNA evidence confirmed his guilt.
1: Trump's response to the jogger case, like right before the first Home Alone came out, really exemplifies maybe um, some of the harsher attitudes towards quality of life crime or more serious crime in New York City.
0: So when you take into account the kind of thinking that people in power in New York City were advocating, not just for serious crimes, but for small infractions, for property crimes, the slapstick violence of the climax, in which little Kevin lures the wet bandits to that Upper West Side brownstone renovation, where he tortures them with nail guns, electrocutions, bricks and wrenches to the head, and ultimately sets them on fire, well, it takes on a grizzlier subtext. Whoa! Nice knife for neck injury! I remember even,
1: like, as a kid thinking that, like, even as a kid, like, you were sort of aware, and I think maybe even my parents commented on this after, like, the movie, but like, the booby-trapped house this time around is, it's maybe less of a Looney Tunes thing or, like, a sort of rake-stepping slapstick thing and more of, like, I mean, he just keeps throwing bricks at Daniel Stern. Like, he murders him, like, several times. <laughs> anymore It's really tough to uh to watch but but it's the ethos, right? It's that's the ethos of bring back the death penalty, bring back our police. That's the ethos of the real rain that's coming to wash the scum off the street. That's the ethos of if you don't look so bad, here's another it's pretty uh it's it's pretty brutal. But if that's what you got to do to reclaim uh, urban property values, then that's what you got to do, I guess.
0: Sarah Marshall is the co-host of You're Wrong About, a podcast where she and co-host Michael Hobbs talk about a lot of ephemera of the 90s, so I just sort of assumed that she'd seen Home Alone 2. I have never seen Home Alone 2. That blew my mind. How is that even possible that that you had never seen it?
2: I didn't see Home Alone 1 until very late in life, and I think that the Home Alones are really very dependent on childhood, like most Christmas movies, Mm -hmm. to sort of feel like a part of our lives. Like, I actually really bonded with the Home Alones this year, and I credit you for asking me what I thought of Home Alone too, because I was like, nothing, I think nothing, how weird. It's like, it's, <laughs> these are some of the most profitable movies of the 90s, weirdly enough, or at least the first one was. This was one of the movies that I watched during the period immediately after Election Day when when things were just very stressful. I'm really happy that, that you suggested uh, watching this, and also that I got into these movies in a big way for the first time during my first, like, big Home Alone Thanksgiving Christmas holiday season. Right. We- during a time when, you know, all of us need to be, you know, finding a way to embrace aloneness to some extent. Mm. I don't know. It was just great timing. I appreciate that. And I recommend it this year for everybody. I think one of the wonders of the Home Alone movies is that they were like, John Williams! One of the greatest composers of our time, would you like to write a score for a John Hughes movie? I know there are also Chris Columbus movies, but no one ever describes something as a Chris Columbus movie when they're trying to describe the eighties, <laughs> right? right and John and John Williams is like, yes, I would like to give you all this Christmas music and a, a new and like new Christmas carols that I wrote myself because I'm John Williams and I love Christmas, apparently
0: <laughs> <laughs> right.
2: I'm very fond of the parts in these movies where basically Kevin having escaped his horrible family bonds with other adults that are nice. And so I loved it when he, uh, when the toy store man gave him the turtle doves ornament, I was like, Oh my God. Like that just really, yeah, that really touched me. And, uh, and then him and, and the pigeon lady in central park who is, uh, Brenda Fricker, who's also, I think, had won an Academy Award by this time,
0: so like she had, yes,
2: they're pulling in the big guns for this movie. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, well, no, and they had Eddie Bracken playing the the Toy Star guy, who was like this great Preston Sturges oh, leading man, you I know, didn't like know they that. were, yeah, who hadn't acted a lot in recent years. So yeah, no, you're right, but I think what's what's really what's fascinating about talking to you about it is that like. All of the other people we've talked to on this episode saw it as children. And so when we're trying to sort of get at what it's really doing and saying, they have to like punch through this wall of nostalgia to get to it. You didn't have to go through that process. So like, you know, you talk a lot on your podcasts about the kind of social messages that are often sort of slyly being smuggled into our popular entertainment. What do you think these movies broadly, but Home Alone 2 in particular, are sort of quietly telling us between the lines? I
2: think Home Alone is so resonant partly because it's in a model that we really gravitate towards as as humans, which is the child or the adolescent like going on a strange journey away from their parents and proving themselves and then returning home as if nothing changed, but they know that everything's different. Which actually, to like... <laughs> we could call this a Chris Columbus movie because that's the plot of Adventures in Babysitting, which is one of my favorites, right. which is, all, is a movie that I grew up with and watched a million times when I was a kid. First movie I saw that had the F word in it. <laughs>
0: big, big deal. Big deal. <laughs> that's yeah. a great
2: moment. Um, and that's The Wizard of Oz and that's Labyrinth. And it's actually something that I think we'd see a little bit less with boys as the protagonist. And the fact that like, Macaulay Culkin is such a little kid in this. He's playing an eight-year-old. I think he's like a little bit older than that at the time. But yeah, and, you know, it's this clearly this extremely vulnerable looking and yet quite crafty young child trying to defend his enormous, beautiful home against <laughs> two hardened criminals, one of whom we we know because I think these movies came out in the same year was in Goodfellas, a movie where we watched him kick a man to death. Right. So the stakes are very high. Yes. It's also a movie that feels very in keeping with sort of white suburban American beliefs and like need to feel victimized. Where like, yeah, let's watch this child subject these career criminals to the degree of of bodily trauma that in real life would kill them eight or nine times. Right. <laughs>
0: And I think there's also something very key in that that's happening in the sequel, in that idea of taking, you know, the sort of suburban ethos into this city that at that point was still sort of uh, the, the, the quintessential broken American city.
2: Yeah, this also I was really struck watching this by the sort of the optimism about New York that this movie has mm-hmm. and I feel as if this is of a piece with the whole you know in retrospect it's very it's much funnier now to say like Giuliani <laughs> turning right. Times Square into a family destination it's like huh yep now that we know what we know about Rudy Giuliani can we admit that this idea had flaws and <laughs> and that like yes having like you know a key district of your city look, you know, like a, a a huge rat king full of vice is not ideal, maybe. But turning into a giant m and store isn't the greatest either. Right. Yeah, this movie is also very optimistic about how much room service at the plaza costs. I really...
4: <laughs> that was something I felt like the movie did get right, was if you've got an envelope full of somebody else's money, you can do pretty much whatever you want in New yeah, York City.
2: Yeah, you're right. So I guess more movies about people going to New York should just have the like, stole a bunch of money from John Hurd, angle at the start because then it just things are much more believable like a start of girls everyone steals money from John Hurd. great
0: <laughs> what is home alone Two ultimately telling us about the spirit of Christmas and I'm thinking especially in the closing scenes yeah. and the, the, the how the family is treated at this hotel like like but in the throughout the narrative, in terms of how it sort of quantifies Christmas.
2: Well, I love that one of the things we see Kevin do here is go see classical music with his new friend, the Pigeon Lady. Of course. And treat her to hot chocolate. And, yes. Yeah. And that his sort of idea of himself as a child loose in a city with a wad of cash is like, I must buy hot chocolate for my friends who are lonely <laughs> and who did not steal their dad's money. Um <laughs> And I think that, you know, just watching... I It is... I mean, I am someone who loves slasher movies and loves repetitive horror movie franchises. So, like, obviously, I don't mind seeing the same basic plot played out again and again with slight variations. And I think that when you see that happen, you sort of see what the creator deems important. So, like, watching something that John Hughes, like, isn't wearing himself out, putting together, like, you see what he appears to think of as as crucial to the template and so like chicago isn't crucial some kind of home defense is crucial which is interesting like they could have had like kevin is in the subway and you know or something like that but that wouldn't have felt right i think like he ha- he's a defender of homes kevin is and <laughs> he's not charles bronson he's uh <laughs> he's kevin and uh <laughs> Also, I think that, you know, just the ability to teach an old person to be willing to love again is kind of seems Mm. to be the key part of his journey, which is really that's interesting to me. That feels And that's really the thing that made me cry the most that I know that that's what made George Costanza cry when he watched Home Alone on (laughs) Seinfeld. And just the part where he's talking to the pigeon lady and he's she's talking about, you know, She was married once, but she has this fear of being hurt and she doesn't let people get close anymore. And he's like, that reminds me of my new rollerblades. (laughs) (laughs) And tells the rollerblades allegory where, like, you're afraid to put them on because you don't want to mess them up. And then one day you're too big for them. And I was like, wow, yeah, it is like that. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things I really, I've been thinking about with the John Williams music is that, like, we don't maybe think about it. As much, but he created a musical shorthand for the story the same way that Star Wars has shorthands, right? Like, because mm-hmm. sure. you know that little piece of music, right? Mm-hmm. The like, yeah, the main Home Alone, the like, da 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 da. And the lyrics to that are somewhere in my memory. There's the feeling of Christmas or something like that, which like as I'm Mm -hmm. saying those lyrics, I'm giving myself goosebumps because I'm like, yep, John Williams, you know what you're doing. But (laughs) (laughs) But just this idea that even for an eight year old, Christmas is about nostalgia and that he's, you know, that music plays when he's missing the way that Christmas was when his family was with him, you know, last year or three days ago or something. And just how we're it feels like we're always trying to get back to something. I don't know. Home I think Home Alone is is probably also a movie that recognizes that sometimes we're only going to accept wisdom from a child. So like fine. Listen to Kevin about rollerblades. He has a point. It's a smart kid. <laughs>
1: I don't think it's a coincidence that there's a clip of it's a wonderful life in the movie like this is about this sort of magical thinking alternative reality where you get to see what your life would be like if you were really alone and were not living in this sort of classic mid-century American small town with its heartland values and that and so The way in which I think the film reconciles these things is by making the city sort of safer for that sort of heartland mentality through, I don't know, cleaning it up a little bit, doing all of that sort of quality of life, broken window stuff. And it's essentially real estate. I mean, specifically the way in which Kevin cleans up the city is he he weaponizes the renovation of a brownstone uh, to defeat criminals, which is exactly what happened in the giuliani 90s
0: at least i just want to be clear i agree with everything mark ash says home alone 2 is lousy with the kind of gentrifying suburbanite thinking that would render new york city so flavorless so homogeneous in the decades to come it couldn't be more of a naked play for reverse white flight if it tried landing as it does as a rejoinder to all of those urban thrillers and slasher movies of the previous two decades And all those news reports, too. A chuckling assurance that the days of Taxi Driver and Maniac and Death Wish are over, and that the Fear City pamphlet is no longer valid, and that city where you wouldn't even walk the streets a few short years back is now so safe that a cute, white, ten-year-old kid can travel there all by himself, and the scariest lady he meets will end up telling him to
5: follow the star of his own heart.
0: But... It's also Christmas. And I'm not made of wood.
5: As my six-year-old has has pointed out, uh, we can watch it any old time of year, um, any time of day. um, And I think that that's just because he, the part that makes him smile the most, actually, of, of everything in the film is not so much the violence, though he does love it. It's the moment in both Home Alone and Home Alone 2 where Kevin embraces his mom and she says something along the lines of, I'm sorry. Oh, Kevin.
3: Mom, I'm sorry. I'm sorry,
5: too. Just gives him a big hug, and he just, that's all he needed throughout both films.
3: (laughs) Merry Christmas, Mom. Merry Christmas, sweetheart. You knew i was here well i know you and christmas trees and this is the biggest one around
0: 2020 is such a clusterfuck that even the rockefeller center christmas tree arrived looking rough but that's okay it's here and it's doing its best just like the rest of us hunkering down for a long hard winter trying like hell to squeeze the pleasure out of our grim present squinting hopefully at the possibilities on the horizon So maybe it's okay to hold a little bit of love somewhere in the corner of your cold, hard soul for a movie like Home Alone 2. To give ourselves permission to look past its messaging, both subtle and surface. To enjoy a sweet little holiday movie. Just as we can allow ourselves a moment at the end of this brutal year to stare at blinking lights on a tree and feel okay. But just for a moment. From Fun City, I'm Jason Bailey. Fun City Cinema is inspired by the forthcoming book Fun City Cinema New York and the Movies That Made It out in fall 2021 from Abrams Books.
4: Fun City Cinema is written and hosted by my friend Jason Bailey.
0: And produced and co-hosted by my friend Mike Hole.
4: Special thanks to today's guests. Mark Ash is the author of the New York Movies volume of the Close-Up series, alongside Vampire Movies
0: by Charles Bermesco and Wes Anderson by Sophie Monks-Kaufman. Jillian Mapes is a senior editor at Pitchfork. You can follow her on Twitter at Jumon S. Mapes, and you can find her piece on the geographical inaccuracies of Home Alone 2 at FlavorWire.com. Sarah Marshall is
4: working on a book about the satanic panic. As you know, if you listen to the wonderful podcast, You're Wrong About. Sarah also co-hosts the new podcast, Why Are Dads? And she's on Twitter at
0: Remember underscore Sarah. And Anya Stanley's work is available all over the internet, including at CrookedMarquee.com, where coincidentally enough, I'm editor-in-chief. And where you can find her terrific piece about the first Home Alone. She's on Twitter at Bookish Plinko. Additional special thanks to Consigliere Rebecca Dryden. And to Brendan McDonald, who played Matt Damon for us today. You can occasionally hear him on WTF with Mark Marin, which he produces.
4: Our website is www.funcitycinema.com.
0: And if you'd like to see some of the clippings and images referenced on today's episode, you can follow us on Instagram at FunCityCinema. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at
4: Brainwashed Lib, and Jason is at Jason-Bailey.
0: And if you like this podcast and would like to hear more of them, you can support it on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash funcitycinema.
4: Or you can rate and review the podcast on your favorite app. It really
0: helps. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason. And thank you for listening.
3: There are eight million stories in the Naked City. This has been one of them.
2: Merry Christmas, you filthy animal. And a Happy New Year.
4: Did I forget something, big man?